well, good morning, Bethany West Seattle. For those of you that are watching online, for those of you that are here, uh, good morning. We're so glad that you joined us. And, and as Hannah said, that we will be postponing our reconnect lunch that was supposed to be scheduled for next week. I'm super bummed about that, but given uh, the state that we're in, and I know many of you right now watching online are not feeling as comfortable, uh, especially at this time where um, things are getting kind of strange. And so uh, we want to honor that, and we do want to uh, bring that about uh, as soon as we feel like it's a responsible time. And so, uh, again, we will be continuing this series on Job. And I love this series because I feel like it's so practical, especially where we are today. If you feel like you have experienced a season of suffering or heartache or pain or sorrow or loss, I really feel and believe that God has something to say to us through this book of Job. Now, as I've said from week one, Job isn't necessarily a guidebook on what to do when suffering or why suffering exists or the answers to life's questions about suffering, but it's about when suffering happens, how can we be at peace? How can we be comforted? How can we be moving forward? And a lot of that is acknowledging that sometimes there's mystery involved in pain and suffering. And so, uh, appropriately, our series is called Embracing Mystery. There's a lot of mystery when it comes to why things happen the way they do, why things unfold the way they do. And so this week, uh, there's a lot about friendship that I want to talk about, about what it means to be good friends in the midst of suffering uh, and the question is not only what does it mean for you to be a good friend in the midst of suffering for somebody else, do you have friendships? And when I say friendships, I mean a, a level of intimacy and in, in connection and vulnerability with others during your seasons of suffering and pain and loss. And so with that said, our text this morning comes from Job chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. And let me read this out loud and we'll pray. And it says this. Now when Job's three friends heard of these troubles that had come upon him, each of them set out from his home. Eliphaz from Temanites, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. In case any of you are looking for baby names, those are some good ones. Uh, they met together to go and console and comfort him, who is Job. Now remember, this is right after Job is experiencing utmost suffering. He lost his children. He, he lost his land. He lost his livestock. He lost his health. And so his friends hear about all this, and they met together to go and console and comfort him. Verse 12, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept out loud. They tore their robes and threw dust in the air upon their heads. They sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him. For they saw that his suffering was so great. God, thank you that you bring people in our lives to sit with us, 
We thank you that in moments and experiences uh, of, of hardship, that we don't have to do it alone. Sometimes we choose to, but God, may you remind us that we need others and that others need us. And God, may you convict us this morning. May you help us to be good friends to others. May you provide relationships that have depth and meaning and significance. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen and amen. And now, if you've been around uh, this church, you, you hear oftentimes me sharing experiences uh, of me being a chaplain uh, several years ago in a hospital in Los Angeles. And really, I, I did it because it was part of my process for ordination. And I promise you, if it wasn't for that requirement, I would have never done it, or at least I would have quit after the first day or the first week because of how hard that, that role was. Part of my job was to be with families who just lost their loved one. Part of my job was to be with physicians and nurses and healthcare workers as they deliver bad news to families. A part of my job was to be with people literally laying in their deathbed, just waiting for them to pass. But one thing that I'll never forget is while I was, while I'm sitting with these people that are, again, laying in their deathbed, uh, I realized there was a pattern of conversations that we were having, and, and I wish I would have learned this lesson as a young person, because I feel like it would change the way I view relationships. The conversations that I had with people in those beds, it wasn't about them reminiscing on how rich they were or even how poor they were. It wasn't about memories of their material possessions, of their cars, of their houses, or of their status, or of their positions at their jobs. It wasn't. Majority of the conversations that I had with people in those hospitals as a chaplain was about relationships. It was about their loved ones, whether it was a spouse, a family member, a close friend, a neighbor, a mentor, a teacher. And these conversations were, were often conversations of hope, of regret, uh, of gratitude, of sorrow, uh, of I wish I can do things differently, only if this, only if that. But all of the conversations that I had were centered around their relationships. There was a psychiatrist in a Harvard, a psychiatrist and a Harvard professor named Robert Waldinger, who is a current director of a 75-year-old, uh, 75-plus-year-old study on adult development. Uh, he's a, he's a director of this study that's been going on for 75-plus years. Uh, and this is a study that was started with teenagers at the time who are now 90 years old today. And it was research on uh, what makes them joyful, what brings them fulfillment, what does it mean to develop as adults. And he says this at the conclusion of this uh, of this research, he says the conclusion of this very in-depth in-depth study is this. There's a clear message. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. And again, he's referring to friendships via marriage, children, 
family, friends, neighbors. He says, after 75 plus years of research uh, of people from their teens growing up in their 90s, he said out of all of that, uh, the, the conclusion that he comes up with is pretty simple. He says the clearest message of this entire project is that good relationships keep us healthy and healthier, period. But here's the issue. He says that we're living in a world of fragmentation. We're living in a world where, where, where friendships have lost its value for many different reasons. And I think we can all resonate with reasons why we put friendships and relationships on the back burner. <clears throat> Depending on which generation you're from, the, the reasons might differ. Maybe it's social media. We feel like because we have so many followers or friends on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever it is, that we feel like we have relationships. I see what people are doing. Maybe it's because of video games that we isolate ourselves. Maybe even because the neighborhoods have become more unsafe. Remember the days, and maybe I'm dating myself, where we were just on our bicycles with friends doing nothing but just riding around the neighborhood, doing nothing. I don't know what my parents were thinking. I don't even know if I had a curfew. I would just ride my bike, and then I would come home, and it was that. It was, it, that's exactly what I did. And, and nowadays, like, that just isn't happening. I, I remember Marie and I were going for a walk, and we saw uh, a neighbor's house in the front yard. There was like six or seven bikes just laying on the ground. And I was like, that still happens? I remember those days where we just... You know, these, like, street demons, we would just ride our bikes and just throw it on the ground, and we would go and invade friends' fridges, and I'm like, oh, it was just a beautiful sight, because we know that that's just not happening these days, for, for whatever reason, even for good reasons, that because of unsafe neighborhoods, and, or, or, or maybe that we've, we've, we've cut off friendships because of this volatile time with politics, uh, with our culture, with our polarization, with our demonization of people that disagree with us, we cut them out, and so hence we have less friendships and relationships in our lives. Or, or maybe it's this pandemic because we've isolated ourselves, or maybe it's our own workaholism and us finding our identity in our achievements and our jobs. Maybe it's this uh, increase in report in mental health or where we, where we just want to be alone for whatever reason. Friendships have been on a decline, which is a problem because after this 80-year-old study at Harvard, they've discovered that friendships and relationships are important. You see, there's a problem now. They are important, and yet they're on the decline. The HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration, says this in their latest report. 40% of Americans say they sometimes or always feel their social relationships are, meaning, uh, are not meaningful. 20% describes themselves as lonely or socially isolated. From a pure physical health perspective, researchers say loneliness is as bad for you as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Furthermore, only about 50% of Americans have meaningful in-person social interactions on a daily basis, and the numbers are far worse, it says, for Generation Z. And so maybe you're showing up here and you're feeling lonely. Maybe this resonates with you. And if that's you, I invite you to take, a, take an inventory of your relationships. Because to paraphrase this professor's words, friendships are important. 
And not only was this his premise that friendships are important, excuse me, but the premise is also it's not about the quantity of friendships, but it's about the quality. When we take an inventory of the relationships in our lives, I don't, I'm not asking you how many friends can you count. It's what is the depth of relationships you have. That includes the, the quality of relationships that you're in. Can you measure that? Can you confidently say, yes, I have quality, meaningful, significant relationships in my life? Do you have deep, intimate, meaningful relationships in your life? That is the question. Uh, again, I'm not asking how many friends or followers you have. I'm not even asking what your marital status is. I'm not asking how many people you know or how many work friends you have. But do you, and, and I ask myself this too, do we have people in our life that we can actually do life with? And conversely, are you the kind of person that does life with others? Do you have friends you can be vulnerable with, honest with, to be shame-free with, to be so comfortable in your own skin within their presence with, especially in seasons of suffering? You see, as we noted, the, the, book, the book of Job consists of conversations between Job and his friends. In other words, it has a lot to do with friendships in the seasons of trial. After all, this makes sense because from the beginning of time, when God created the first humans, uh, the big part of their identity was the fact that they were in relationship with one another, that Adam and Eve were deeply interconnected with one another. And in, in Genesis chapter 2, it says, God created them, they were naked, and they felt no shame. What that meant was that they were naked with one another. It's not just that they were without clothes, but they were able to be shameless with one another. They were able to be fully themselves with, with no judgment, with no fear, with complete vulnerability. This is what it means to have deep relationships. Do we have people in our lives that we can be that vulnerable with, that honest with, that comfortable with? And according to statistics, many of us, I would say including myself, we do not. You see, when God created the first humans, God said for the very first time, or one of the first times, that it wasn't just good, but it was very good. It was tov me'od, very good. One of the only times that God calls something very good. When God created the sun, the moon said, that was good, that was good. But when God created Adam and Eve together, now that wasn't just good, that was tov meo, that was very good. And there's huge theological significance in that, we won't go into today, but the point is this. The point is God created us to be in relationship with one another. No wonder that study after study says that relationships and friendships are important, and no wonder that we're living in a time where friendships are in a downfall and things are a disaster for many of us. And so if you've ever felt lonely or like nobody understood, if you've ever felt out of place, if you've ever felt like no one understood you, if you've ever paid attention to how you felt when you felt like the world was against you, then you know and you have felt that relationships are a part of our DNA. 
And so when it's missing or when it's conflicted, we know that something is wrong or something is just off. We've felt that before. We need friendships. And you see, traditionally, Job's friends in this book of Job, they they get a bad rap for being terrible friends to Job in the midst of his suffering. And, And I would say rightly so. Even there's, a time, there's even a time when Job refers to his friends in chapter 16 as miserable comforters are you all. Job says that my friends have been miserable comforters. But you see, Job's friends, uh, they didn't start off that way. They, they, they started off actually being good friends to Job. And, and I would submit to you that they were so good to Job that they become lessons or a guidebook for us on how to be good friends to others in the midst of suffering. And so when we take a look at the verses that we just read, uh, I just want to unpack quickly three lessons, good lessons. We'll we'll get to how terrible they were throughout the series, if not, uh, and we have since the beginning. But I do want to cut cut them some slack and share at least three lessons, three good lessons we can learn from Job's friends. The first lesson that we learn is this. Job's friends practiced presence. They showed what it meant to practice presence. Again, in verse 11, it says this, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, uh, heard about the troubles that that Job had come upon, they set out from their homes and met together in agreement to go and sympathize with him and to comfort him. Now we see quickly, now we can quickly read this verse and, and just skip the names. These are weird names, and, and we can skip where they're from because they're uh, weird places that we've never heard of. But the author of Job is trying to tell us something with the background of Job's friendships. And, and the first thing is this that these friends, they come from uh, an upper class and well educated region. This place of what scholars believe is they're referring to a place of Edom, which is a place of high scholars, very well to do, high reputable people. And so what we can gather from that is that Job's three friends that came to comfort Job were people of importance, of high status, of high reputation. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we see that these friends, they dropped everything they were doing and they traveled to be with Job. Now, we don't know how far they had to travel, but we would presume that it was quite a distance because the way that they heard of Job's suffering was probably through a, a messenger, and messengers were usually used to relay messages to people that were a bit far away. And so I don't want us to just quickly read over the names of these friends and where they were from. The author is trying to tell us two important things, that these were important people. And these important people of high status and reputation dropped everything, and they traveled to be with Job. And it says this, when they finally came together, they agreed to, 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 to comfort Job. They went to him, and it says in the next verse 12, it says, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. 
they can hardly recognize him. Because this was right after Job lost everything, his land, his livestock, his children, his health. Just a few verses before this, it says this. Uh, This was Satan's uh, attack or test on Job. It says that Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted uh, Job with painful sores. From the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And so when Job's friends saw him this way, they were in shock and in deep sadness. Have you ever seen a friend where they, they need you? Because they're going through something, whether it's physical or maybe it's emotional or relational or spiritual or whatever it is. They call you up and you go there and they're just so broken. And, and when you see them immediately, your heart sinks. Because you can visibly see the pain in their eyes and in their bodies and their voice. And I can imagine this is the way that Job's friends felt. They knew that he was in trouble. They knew that he was suffering. And they gather, they go, and they, from a distance they look and say, look, is that Job? And they go up to him, and he's with boils, it says, from sole to feet. Everything around him is destroyed. You know, just a few months ago, uh, Maria, she had shoulder surgery. And it was an invasive Shoulder surgery. She tore three parts of her shoulder. And I remember the doctor, when I was waiting in the waiting room, they said, oh, it'll be about two hours. I said, okay. Uh, Two hours have passed. And now we're we're at three hours. Now I'm getting a little concerned because I didn't hear anything. Now we're getting towards four hours, double the time that the doctor said the surgery would take. And about four and a half hours, I finally got called in and said, okay, she's ready. She's in the, in the recovery room. And, and mind you, this is probably, you know, since we've known each other, our biggest kind of health hurdle as of now. And, and so when I go into the recovery room, I see Maria. She's in, in the bed, in the hospital gown. She's like half conscious because of the anesthesia. She has tubes in her. She has an, an IV attached to her. And she has a huge sling and wrap on her shoulder. And I knew that she was in pain. And I just remember just walking and opening up the curtains and my heart just sank. Because of what I saw and the pain that she was dealing with. And if you've ever experienced that with a loved one. Again, maybe it's not physical, maybe it's emotional, maybe it's mental, maybe it's a loss that someone else experienced. We know what Job's friends experienced. Sitting and looking at the pain in his friends, in their friends' eyes. And not only did they see Job from a distance and hardly recognize him through the suffering, I would also imagine that they understood what was on the line for their friends. Again, what the author is trying to tell us, Job's friends, highly educated, wealthy, respected in their community, to be associated with somebody who experienced this much suffering was a risk. Because remember last, year, last week we talked about the retribution principle. The belief was that if someone was experiencing that much suffering, it's because they did so much wrong to that level, to that degree. 
And so one would argue that when you saw Job and the utmost suffering that he received and is experiencing, the conclusion from this worldview, this conventional wisdom says, wow, he must have done something terribly wrong. Not just a little white lie, not just a little mistake. The, 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 the worldview was, wow, Job must have really ticked off God. Job must have really messed up. And to be associated with that kind of sinner is putting yourself and your reputation and your wealth and your notability at risk. And so it was no accident that the author of Job was stating all these things. So there's a lot of things that are happening in the midst of Job's friendships and his friends. He's saying, first of all, Job is going through a hard time. And yet there's this internal debate I believe that we're experiencing that, yes, my friend needs me. Uh, my friend needs us, his community, and yet we also know that if we go there, we're putting ourselves at risk and our reputation and our wealth and our uh, credibility. And yet, they still go. They still go. You know, in verse 12, it says that the friends, they, they met together. It was almost like a pre-meeting before they met with Job, and most scholars would agree that it's because they were counting the cost. Hey, friends, hey, Bildad, Eliphaz, what do you think? Should, should we go? I mean, our friend Job needs us. But on the other side of that is if we go, then people here in our own community will actually maybe disown us or abandon us or think differently of us or maybe associate us with that sin as well. What, what should we do? And yet in the midst of that turmoil, they choose to be present with Job. They were not afraid of what he looked like or what condition they found him in. They pursued Job and they dropped everything that they were doing to do so. They risked for Job, putting their reputation on the line. These were good, loyal friends. His friends practiced presence. In the hardest moments of Job's life, they showed up. Even when it was costly, even when it was inconvenient, even when it was risky, they showed up for Job. I remember a few years ago, there was a lot of things happening in my life. There's, there's a lot of turmoil I was experiencing. Loss of my grandmother, stress out. There's, there's just so many things that I was going through in my personal life. And I remember I was sharing that with my pastor at the time. It was a different church. I was working at the church, actually. And, and the pastor that I was working for, I was just on the phone with him. And I was letting him know the things that I was going through so he can pray for me and so he can just listen, so I can just vent and I remember telling him that, you know what, I just want to be home. I just want to be by myself. I just want to uh, binge watch Netflix or, or whatever I was doing. I just want to uh, have uh, pity on myself and just feel sorry for myself and just lay low. And I truly believe in times of suffering, there's a time and place for that. But when my pastor, my friend, heard this, he, he thought... It, it, it was time for something different. So I didn't know what was about to happen. It was around 9 o'clock at night. He calls me back, and I answer the phone, and he says, come outside. We're in the car. There was four people from the church waiting outside of my house. And he says, get in. We're going. It was almost like they were kidnapping me. And I thought to myself, I really don't want to go. 
But there was something about my friends, my pastor, the people that I consider dear friends, practicing the gift of presence in my life. I received it, and I walked outside in my sweats and my T-shirt, what I actually wear every day now uh, since COVID. Uh, I go outside, I get in the car, and we go to the only place that's open, this pizza restaurant down the street, and, I, and, and they gave me an opportunity to just share what was going on. I remember just weeping, not only because I felt so much gratitude for my friends, but because of the turmoil I was experiencing. And here we are in the middle of this pizza shop, and I was audibly crying. I can imagine how uncomfortable perhaps my friends felt or, or uh, how awkward it was in that position. But nonetheless, they were there. They were practicing presence, and it was so healing for me. Are you willing to be present for your friends? This kind of presence, of showing up, is what deepens relationships. And I don't just mean proximity, but actually be present by dropping your phone, by removing distractions, by looking past what they look like or what state they're in, by sacrificing your time, by sacrificing resources? Are you willing to be this kind of friend for those that are, that are experiencing suffering in their lives? Practicing presence is the first lesson. The second lesson is the practicing empathy. It's the practice of empathy. The second part of verse 12, it says this, they began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. And that sounds weird, I know, but understand the context. In chapter 1 of Job, now this is chapter 2, but in the beginning of chapter 1, when Job lost everything, here's what it says Job did. It says he tore his robe and shaved his head. You see, this was a Jewish way of, of lamenting, of grieving when someone loses somebody special or close to them. They shave their head. They tear off their robes. That's what Job did. He did exactly what he was supposed to do in a time of grief. And so there's this, there's this sense of solidarity when his friends, they see him from a distance in the shape that he's in. He had just torn his robe. He had just shaved his head. And that's when his friends, they began to weep out loud with Job. They also, if I were to rewrite this, I would write the word also. They also, just like Job, tore off their own robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. <clears throat> You see, this was their way of showing empathy. Some translations say sympathy. I don't like that word. I don't think it's accurate to what was actually happen, happening. There's a difference between sympathy and empathy. Sympathy says, I'm sorry you feel this way. Sympathy says, I have pity that you are going through this. Empathy says, I want to feel what you feel. Or I do feel what you feel. I want to share with you in this experience of grief. I want to be in this radical solidarity with you. I want to be in this deep, intimate connection with you by feeling what you feel, by experiencing what you're experiencing. If you shave your head, I'm going to shave my head. If you tear your robe because you are lamenting out of grief and sorrow, I'm going to do the same thing. If you are crying out loud, I want to cry out loud. The psychologist and Dr. Cheeky Davis says this about empathy. Not sympathy, but empathy. Empathy is a sense that you can understand and share the feelings of another. 
This shared experience can generate a profound understanding because you attempt to know what it's like to walk in their shoes. Are you willing to not just feel sorry for the other or feel pity for the other, but are you willing to walk in their shoes? Are you willing to feel the suffering that your friends are feeling? You see, this ability to empathize isn't just about when somebody suffers, although that's a big part of it, but it's in all aspects of our friendships. Are we willing to empathize with others? Because I believe empathy will actually lead to grace, to forgiveness, to, to humanizing. Dr. Brene Brown, I, I often quote her, she says this, empathy leads to connection, sympathy leads to judgmentalism. I remember not too long ago, well actually it's probably a few years ago now, and maybe some of you had this conversation as well during the elections when things were kind of heated, uh, you would have maybe uh, debates or discussions with your friends. And, and I won't tell you, uh, you know, what side my friend was or what side I was on, but we disagreed on who should, and again, this is not something I would preach, but in private conversation with my friends, uh, we had disagreed with who we wanted the president, the incoming president, to be. And, and I remember feeling judgment, and I'll just confess to you, even uh, contempt or even this, this sense of like, uh, are, you, are you kidding me? Why would you want X person to be president? What? And to me, it led to judgmentalism. It even a sense of bitterness and resentment towards that person. And I believe that this person, my good friend, felt that way with me as well. And just out of curiosity, I asked this person, why would you want this person to be present over the other? And he listed a bunch of you know, reasons, and I just didn't buy it. But at the end of the conversation, he says, Prentice, you don't understand. People are afraid. People are afraid. And in that instant, something changed. Because I went from judgmentalism, like, oh, I feel sorry for you. I feel pity on you that you would disagree with me, that you would vote for this person and not the same person that I would vote for. For some reason, as soon as he said, Prentice, I'm afraid, something clicked, and my, my, my brain went from sympathy to empathy where I said, you know what? I've actually felt that pain that you're talking about because I feel afraid too. And, and no longer was this barrier of judgment but there was this connection. It, not that we changed each other's mind because that doesn't have to happen every single time. But at the very least, there was something humanizing about that experience. That though we may, we may disagree on the final whoever we might vote for, but there was a sense of empathy. I, I felt that fear as well. You feel fear? I, yeah, I feel fear too. That's something we can agree on. So it's not just something that's necessary. It's not just a gift when it comes to people that are suffering, although it is. Like, have you ever felt like you were going through something and what was so healing was the fact that someone else had experienced the same thing? Not that you want or desire the kind of pain that you're experiencing onto somebody else, but there's something about that solidarity that is so healing, so humanizing. 
And so that's why when you, whenever you're experiencing or, or maybe you've experienced the other side of that pain, may that be your ministry. That when someone experiences that pain, when they're, in the, when they're in this middle of it, you can say, you know what, I've experienced that. I'm on the other side of that. Or maybe you're in the middle of that as well. And you go to that person and you offer that empathy, not sympathy, but empathy. There's something sacred and holy that happens at that very moment. Maybe that is part of your ministry, to serve others through that painful experience. Viktor Frankl, in his book, uh, Man Searching for Meaning, says this, that suffering ceases to be suffering the moment it finds its meaning. Suffering ceases to be suffering the moment it finds its meaning. So maybe the suffering that you are experiencing is no longer considered suffering, but it's considered meaningful and purposeful, and it's there to serve others. Practice not only your presence, practice empathy, and lastly, practice sitting. Just practice sitting. The next verse, it says, Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him. This is his friends just sitting with Job. No one said a word to Job because they saw how great his suffering was. In the Jewish culture, this is called the sitting shiva. Sitting shiva. It's in Jewish custom. Shiva literally means the number seven. And in Jewish practice, Friends and loved ones would go to whoever was grieving and mourning for seven days and just sit with them without saying a word, without talking, without providing answers, without even trying to, you know, console them or trying to fix the situation. They just sit with them. And I don't know about you, but I have all these practices. This is probably the hardest one for me, and maybe some of you can resonate when my wife Maria, Maria comes to me, maybe after a hard days of work, she just wants to vent. She just wants to tell me of what happened at work or maybe with her family or maybe with her friends. And after she vents to me or tells me what happened, what do I do? I immediately, with confidence, respond with at least three things she can do to make her life better. Well, okay, well, here is the fix. Here is the solution. Here's what you should do next. After all, that's why she came to me, isn't it? I mean, you would only go to somebody, share your problems because you want answers from them, right? I'm learning the hard way. No, the answer is no. The answer is very no. And she would come to me, and after I would respond, she would say, Prentice, I didn't want you to answer or try to fix it. I just wanted you to listen. And I said, I did listen. And then I responded to make your life better. And that never goes well. Because there's something about just sitting with the other person. Again, I wasn't going to share this. I'm thinking about this other illustration that Dr. Brene Brown shares. Sitting with someone, empathizing with someone, being with someone is like this. And she shared this illustration, if I could remember correctly. It's like when someone's sitting in a dark room with their own feelings and their emotions and their experiences. Empathy is like going into that dark room with them and just sitting with them in the dark. 
What it's not is you going into the room and turning on the light and saying, hey, let's do something. Hey, look at the light. Because you know what happens. I mean, have you ever remembered like, this is like almost traumatizing where I, I would be in bed as a high school student or junior high student and my mom or dad would try to wake me up. It's school. You got to get to school. You got to go. You got to go. And I'd say, okay, five more minutes because uh, I'm sleeping in the dark. And then all of a sudden they would come in, they would rip off the blanket, it would turn on the light. And all of a sudden my brain and my eyes are just like, ah, I'm in so much pain. And my parents are laughing, like, get up. Like, okay, I'm up. Oftentimes, that's what we do to our friends that are experiencing suffering. When we provide answers, it's like they're sitting in the dark with the lights out, you know, and they're just sitting, and what we're doing is we go in there, we think we're the hero, we turn on the light, and the only response we get is, ah, what are you doing? When instead, what we should be doing is opening the door and sitting with them, listening. Or just being present. Or just knowing that they have somebody. Without saying a single word. Jesus in the story, there's a story of Jesus in in the Gospel of John. Where two sisters, Mary and Martha, their brother dies. Their brother Lazarus Lazarus dies. And he says, Jesus, they, they say, Jesus, you need to come and you need to heal my brother. My, my, my brother is sick. He's going to die. And by the time Jesus got there, to make a long story short, he did die. And it doesn't say that Jesus immediately fixed the problem. It doesn't say that, you know, Jesus did end up raising Lazarus from the dead. But that's not the first thing that Jesus did. The first thing that Jesus did when Lazarus died was be with the sisters. And it says that Jesus wept. Now, for those of you that are really bad at memorizing Bible verses, maybe this is a good place to start. This is in John chapter 11, verse 35. The entire verse is Jesus wept. That's the whole verse. Jesus wept. Because I believe, although verses didn't come until many years after, there was an important significance of Jesus just being with the sisters and weeping with, with his with Lazarus's family before there was restoration. No wonder in Romans, Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Feel the joy. When someone is rejoicing, when something good happens, don't be jealous, don't be envious, but celebrate with them. We fall into the sense of scarcity, like there's only enough victory for one of us. No, there's enough for all of us through the person of Jesus. Be, rejoice with those who rejoice. And for those that are in pain and in mourning, mourn with those who mourn. Not just sympathetically, but empathetically. And Jesus demonstrated that oh so beautifully with Mary and Martha. Jesus wept. And so maybe this morning, I want to invite the worship team back up as we take this moment of reflection and communion. If you didn't get communion, you can raise your hand. I would ask Hannah to, or some other volunteers to, to bring communion with you. If, you. if you didn't grab one on the way in and you want to participate, you can raise your hand and you can grab one. But in this moment of reflection, I invite you to take a look at your own relationships. Not only do you 
Yes, you can raise your hand if you don't have one. If you have one, great. But the question is this. Not only do you have these friendships in your life, and if you don't, why is that? But the part B, and I think a bigger question, is are you this friend to others? Not just in moments of suffering, although that's a big part of what we're talking about today, but are you a type of friend that will just drop everything. I know that there's boundaries, and I know there's limitations. I want to acknowledge that. But also, are you a type of friend that, that is willing to count the cost? Jesus counted the cost. Are you willing to, to be a friend that counts the cost, to be present with your friends? Yes, it takes energy. Yes, it requires getting out of your house. Yes, it takes getting into your car. Yes, it might include $5 for a cup of coffee or dinner or lunch or whatever it is. But are you the kind of friend that practices presence with your friends? Are you the kind of friend that practices empathy with your friends? Radical solidarity, a deep connection that takes work to build, to feel. Are you a type of friend that will practice sitting with your friends? Consider your friends not a project, but something we take in consideration in the long game. And I believe Jesus did this beautifully, not only with Mary and Martha, but, but on the cross. When he died and resurrected on the third day, Jesus sacrificed his life to be a friend to us. May we be this sacrificial. It says that, uh, that friendship looks like this. The one who sacrifices their life for the other. Are we willing to sacrifice, to give, to be present as Jesus did with, with Mary and Martha to people in our own lives? That is the, 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 the cross of Jesus. And so I would love for us to take out this communion packet. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he says, take this. This is the bread that was broken for you. It's the plastic part with this tablet. He says, take this in remembrance of me. This was my body that was broken for you. I sacrificed this for you because I want to call you friend. This is Christ for us. Let's partake in this together. Immediately after, he says, this is the cup. This is my blood that was shed for you. Take this cup in remembrance of me. Let's take this together. Let's pray. God, thank you that you were the ultimate friend to us by your sacrifice of your life. We thank you for the cross and what it means to us. God, and through that, may we learn to be friends to others, to those that are suffering. May we be present with them, though it may be inconvenient, though it may be costly. Help us to be there for those we love.
God, help us to feel what those to those that are suffering feel. Give us that power of empathy. That when our heart breaks with the other, that provides a sacred connection with them, a healing connection. And God, help us to just sometimes keep our mouths shut and just sit in that holy space of darkness with our friends. God, these are the friendships that we need in our lives. Not the number of friends on our social media, not the number of people that we know, but these are the meaningful friendships we need that we were created for in our lives. Help us to pursue those. We thank you. In your name we pray, amen and amen. Let's continue in closing as we worship together.